The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Good to see each of you here today. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. Open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. I've titled this morning's message, The Lord's Anointed, Part 1. Now, obviously, if there's a Part 1, then you should expect a Part 2 coming pretty soon. But Part 2 is not going to come until after Easter. And so just just to give you a little bit of what's coming in the weeks ahead, um, we have one more sermon next week from 1 Samuel. And then we're going to take a three-week break for Easter. Um, our uh, brother and uh, Pastor John Hall is going to be preaching on Palm Sunday. Uh, my family and I will be in South Carolina. My mom's turning 80. I'm sure she wants me to say that to the world here on, um, on the Internet. But she is turning 80. She's uh, proud of it. And so, um, so I'm going down with my family. We're going to celebrate her birthday, and I'll be down there um, uh, for, for my mom's birthday. And then we'll be back. The family will be back. I'll preach Easter Sunday. Um, and then my wife and I leave again. We'll be out on just a, uh, the two of us with, some, with, some, um, with her cousin and her cousin's husband having some time away. And Brother Pastor Jerry Alvey, there he is, uh, will preach the Sunday after Easter. And then, and then I'll be back in the saddle for a six-week uh, mad dash to the, finish of, to, the, to the end of 1 Samuel. So we'll finish up 1 Samuel in, I think, the first week in June is when we'll finish that up. So that's just a little roadmap for where we're going um, but let's draw our attention to today's sermon. Today's sermon, have you ever been tempted to take matters into your own hands? I know I have. Perhaps it's a situation at work and your boss isn't handling the situation to your own satisfaction and you're tired of waiting. You want resolution. And so, so I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Or, or maybe you've been having a brewing family squabble that's lasted for months, maybe even years. You're hoping it would just go away, but it hasn't. No one else seems to be stepping up, ready to handle the situation. Um, in fact, in your opinion, things haven't gotten better. They've gotten worse. And so with quiet reflection and stern resolve, you decide to take matters into your own hands. Now, beloved, there are certain situations in our lives where we might be called to take personal action. I'm not denying that. At all, we might be called to to get off the sidelines, if you will, and get into the game. But as we do that, we need to remember that we are not the architects of our future, and we are not the authors of our stories. As we consider taking action, we need to remember our place in the drama, this drama that we call life, because God is the ultimate architect, and God is the ultimate author. Yeah, he does call us to play a role. Again, we're not to be sitting on the sidelines for all of life. But as we play our role, we need to remember that this is a story that he's writing. We need to remember promises that he has spoken. And sometimes, and I might even say oftentimes, we are called to wait on the Lord. But I don't know about you, we can be impatient creatures. I know that's true of me. You know, we want what we want, and we want it right now. 
But God's timetable isn't always what our timetable is. As you see, as we sit within time, as we work from one series of moments to another, you know, through minutes, through hours, through days, through weeks, through months, God sits outside of time. As we wait for resolution to our story, God sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He sees it all laid out before Him. And so as we pray about our circumstances, sometimes God calls us to get in the action right now. At other times, He calls us to wait. This morning, we'll be looking at a time in David's life when David's been called to wait. So if you're in 1 Samuel 24, say Amen. amen. Alright. I'm going to read 1 Samuel 24. That's just 22 verses. Follow along with me, please. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the same way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice? My son, David. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. 
he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for I have repaid, or excuse me, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray, Lord, this morning in the hearing of Your Word that Your Spirit would accompany now my words. And I pray, Lord, that I would faithfully reflect on what Your Word says that You would guard me from leading others into error. And Father, inasmuch as today I proclaim the truths of Your Word, I pray that Your Spirit would convict each of our hearts to that regard. And that You would help us to be the men and women that You have called us to be. Lord, this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my central idea this morning is when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, we need to wait on the Lord. When we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, we need to wait on the Lord. And you know, normally I have points, one, two, three, four, five, however many points I might have this morning. Uh, not don't want to say my sermon is pointless, but I don't have any points this morning. We're just going to, we're going to make our way through the text this morning and make some application as we go through the text this morning, okay? So last week, um, at the end of chapter 23, Saul had been called off and his crusade against David because the Philistines were making a raid against Israel. And we don't, we don't know from the text how long Saul was chasing after the Philistines, but we do know that as soon as he finished chasing after the Philistines, Saul got back on his horse, so to speak, and began pursuing David again. David had, uh, David had, been, had fled to the wilderness of En Gedi. En Gedi, if you're familiar at all with the territory of Israel, is on the western shore of the Dead Sea, not too far from where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, if you're a, uh, if you're a fan of, of history. Um, an area of Israel is very mountainous, full of caves. This is where David and his men were hiding. And so Saul takes 3,000 of his best men to go and fight against David. Now you might recall again from the last chapter that David has only 600 men with him. And so Saul outnumbers David by a count of 5 to 1. So hardly fair odds. But in some respect, David's men have the advantage. They're smaller, they're more maneuverable, um, but they also have a home field advantage. David and his men are familiar with this area. They've, they've fled there before. They've spent a lot of time in this area. So they've been hiding out there. They know all the good hiding places. And Saul and his men are trying to find the proverbial needle in a haystack. And so as Saul and his men are trying to find David, nature calls. And Saul has to relieve himself. And you know, I, as I think about that, I even heard some chuckles. It, it's, I find it refreshing that the Bible doesn't you know, gloss over the matters of everyday life, right? 
We, we might blush a bit talking about, you know, here's Saul having to, you know, relieve himself, you know, these private things. Uh, but the Bible is a, is an honest book. It tells stories as they really happened. Okay? And so here, here we have Saul having to take care of business. And since there weren't any porta potties back in the first century, if you wanted some privacy, uh, to take care of your business, you're going to maybe find a hedge of bushes, you're going to go behind a tree, or if you're in this particular region of Israel, in the rocks and the caves, you're going to find a cave to find some privacy. And this is exactly what Saul does. But unbeknownst to Saul, as he actually picks out the cave where David and at least some of his men were in the cave, I don't think it's likely that all of his men were in that cave. The caves aren't generally big enough to hold 600 men and 600 men that would go undetected in that cave. Um, there would have been many other caves in this region, so you know, could be you know, 100 of them so in this cave, 100 in this cave, etc., spread out in the area. But nevertheless, in this particular cave, Saul is taking care of his business. And although it's dark enough for David and his men to hide, there's still enough light for them to know, look who just walked in the cave. He, Saul has just come into this cave. And, and, and given, I don't mean to be too graphic here, but given the, that the events that take place, it, it takes place over a, not just a few seconds, but over several minutes. Um, how do I bring this up? He's probably going number two, not number one, okay? Just, just leave it at that. Um, now, you might think, why, why do you even bring that up? Um, here, here's why. Here's why I bring that up. Let, let's think about this. We could hardly find a more compromising position for salt. Right? When you're doing that, you're not exactly in a position to defend yourself against your enemy. He, you know, he wouldn't have had a bodyguard with him. You know, the, the reason he went into the cave is because he wanted privacy. And so here's Saul in this very compromising position, taking care of his business. And David's men like, there's Saul. Here's your chance. Here's the day they say to him in verse 4, Here's the day the Lord has made for you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. In other words, David, you're not going to get a better shot than this. Here's your time to take him out. And so David gets up. You picture the scene. They're in the dark cave and he stealthily makes his way to find, the, find Saul's robe. Uh, for what I hope are obvious reasons, Saul's not likely wearing his robe uh, while he's taking care of business. He's likely laid it aside and David cuts off a piece of the robe. Now, I can only imagine as David just cuts off a piece of the robe and starts heading back to his men, I, I can only imagine the huge disappointment this would have been in the eyes of David's men. They would have been like, you know, what are you doing, David? You know, here's your chance. Have you lost your nerve? I mean, here's your chance to take him out. But David, on the other hand, we're told that David's heart is struck by the mere fact that he cut off just a corner of Saul's robe. I mean, we might even David had a fairly sensitive conscience about this, right? But why? Why, why is his conscience so torn about this? David's men wanted him to kill Saul, but David himself is grief-stricken that he just cut off a corner of the robe. I mean, David should be like, hey man, I... You know, I held back. I mean, you should be applauding me. But David's heart is struck. What's happening? I think two things are happening right here. First, I think David has at least a, a nascent understanding, so a, a fledgling understanding of what Jesus would say some 1,000 years later. 
that if we hate somebody in our heart, we're already guilty of murder. And I think David understands this in God's revelation that he, his heart was convicted of his heart attitude towards Saul. This is why his heart was struck. He wasn't cutting off the corner of his robe as a measure of good faith. He was wanting to get back at Saul. And so his heart was struck. But second, and please, please understand this, the robe was more than just a robe. The robe represents the, thor- the throne itself. It's the king's royal robe. It's only worn by the king. And by damaging the robe, David's heart or his conscience is struck because in essence he was striking the throne itself. David goes on to say in verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And then David persuades his men not to attack Saul. You see, in David's eyes, Saul was the Lord's anointed. Three times in our passage today, David refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed. What does that mean to be the Lord's anointed? Well, it means this. God is the one who put Saul into his position as king. God chose Saul to be king. And in David's mind, God is going to be the one to take Saul out of that position. David himself is not going to lift a finger to take Saul out of that position. You see, David knew that one day, I mean, he's already been promised that he's going to be the next king. David knew one day he's going to be king, but right now, in this moment, Saul is the king. And David's not going to do anything to usurp Saul's rightful authority as king. You see, we're promised, or we're told rather, we're taught in the New Testament that we're to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And the Apostle Paul goes on in that same passage to say, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Beloved, here's a lesson for us. How we as Christians speak of or interact with kings and all who are in high positions Our speech and our behavior in this respect has a direct impact on how the gospel is heard by the world. That's what Paul is telling us. And David's conscience was cut because he cut into the very fabric of what it meant to be the king. No pun intended there. Now, let's think about some application for ourselves. And let's think about our last two presidents. Okay, the current president and the one who preceded him. I, I use those two. I could use any two, but I use those two because we have one from one side of the political aisle and one from the other side of the political aisle. There have been things said about both of these men by people who call themselves Christians, and I don't know whether they're Christians or not. Only God knows that. Okay, I'm not, I'm not making a judgment about whether these people are Christians or not, but people who call themselves by the name of Christ, things said that really ought not to have been said about either of them. There have been things said that don't honor Christ. There have been things said that don't honor the image of God in either of these men. Now, please please don't misunderstand me. In, in, in our form of government, I'm not suggesting at all that we shouldn't vociferously object to certain policies or agendas that are proposed by our elected leaders. I mean, we, we have a voice and we should use our voice. 
You know, as Christians, sometimes we need to stand up and say, you know, this is not right, period. But where we've gone in our age is to not only disagree with policy or agenda, but also to, to, to disagree with the humanity of the person holding the office and sometimes even to disdain the very office itself. Depending on what your political leanings are, you, you might very well have some strong neg- negative feelings about one or even perhaps both of these presidents. You might think of one or both of them as bad men or evil men. I'm not going to weigh in on that. That's not my intention this morning. I'll let, let history judge that verdict, okay? I'm not trying to make political points here. Here's one thing I can say to draw our attention back to the text. King Saul, by this point in his life, has turned into a raging lunatic. Now remember, just two chapters ago, Saul ordered the execution of the priests and their families. Saul ordered 85 innocent men, women, and children to be put to death, to be slaughtered. Saul did that. If anyone deserved to die, it was Saul. Yet David's heart is struck just because he cuts off a piece of his robe. Now here, here's the close of my application to this, to this point. We as Christians, we need to be mindful and Christ-like in how we speak about others in high positions. Again, it's not to say we can't disagree with them, but there's a way to disagree with ideas and policies and agendas without demeaning the person or the office. And I would argue, by the way, that this principle holds true for a variety of people in authority. It would hold true for other elected leaders, not just presidents. It would hold true for how we speak about our bosses at work. It would hold true, listen, children, young people, it would hold true for how you talk about your parents or your teachers or your school administrators. And I don't mean to sound self-serving here, but it would hold true for how we talk about pastors. You know, if you're a member of this church, I can assure you that each of the pastors here at this church, we are well aware of our own shortcomings. Okay, I can do another. I can do a whole sermon. I can spend the whole afternoon giving you my shortcomings. But as a church, you have nevertheless entrusted to us a position of authority in the governance of this church. Now, there there are times when when we will get it wrong. Okay, pastors in this church, we'll get it wrong. But the pushback should never demean the person. And I, and I say that, by the way, I'm not saying that because I'm aware of people who are, who are actually demeaning either me as a pastor or one of the lay pastors. I'm not, I'm not saying it for that reason, okay? I'm not like trying to actually scratch an itch that may not be here. I'm saying that because I just think that's a good application of this principle in the, in the text, all right? Let's get back to the text, though. At the end of verse 7, Saul finishes his business. He leaves the cave. Soon thereafter, David leaves the cave and he calls out. He says, My Lord, the King. Saul Saul stops in his tracks. He looks behind him. He sees David bowing in humble submission to him. It's it's unclear at this point, by the way, whether Saul recognizes it, that it's David. Because later in the text, Saul will say, Is that your voice, my son David? Um, I think probably what's happening here is that Saul is close enough to hear David but he's far enough away that he's not 100% sure that it is that he can't 100% make him out. At any rate, David has a lot to say to Saul. And beginning in verse 9, he says this, and I'm going to quote again. This is from verse 9 and following. David says, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? 
Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. See, my Father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? In other words, he's saying, I'm, I'm in, insignificant in this. Who, who are you pursuing? Verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David makes Saul very aware that he's had every opportunity to kill him, but he didn't. He even had others trying to convince him, you know, this is your time, you need, you need to take him out. But he doesn't. And we remember again, Saul, for his actions against the priests alone, those 85 people that he ordered to be killed, Saul is worthy of death. But David says, I'm not going to kill him because he's the Lord's anointed. David has a lot to say, but I want to focus on three words that David says. He uses those same three words three times in this passage. He uses them twice in verse 12, and then once again in verse 15. David says, May the Lord. May the Lord. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. And may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. May the Lord, may the Lord, may the Lord. What is David getting at here? He's telling Saul again he's had every opportunity to take him out. But David says, I'm going to wait on the Lord. He's telling Saul, you know, with one thrust of my spear or with one swing of my blade, I could put an end to this chapter in my life. He says, but I'm going to wait on the Lord. David could have taken action, but he was going to wait on the Lord. David trusted God to be the judge. David trusted God to avenge him. David trusted God to give a just sentence and to deliver him from Saul. Beloved, I hope the application of that is as plain as the nose on our faces. Have we ever been tempted in our own lives to take matters into our own hands? Allow me to give one concrete example of this principle. I take this from recent news headlines. Have, have we suffered harm and been tempted to take another believer to court? Just last year, there was one rather prominent Christian leader who was taking another prominent Christian leader to court. Even though, by the way, the Apostle Paul has some rather harsh words in 1 Corinthians 6 about believers taking other believers to court. You know, Paul says in that chapter, you know, wouldn't it be better that you just suffer wrong than to take somebody to court? But oftentimes we, we want our voices heard and so we pay, take people to court rather than waiting on the Lord. 
And again, to be clear, I'm not, I'm not suggesting at all, nor is the Bible saying that going to court is always, in every case, a wrong thing to do. In our system of government, sometimes there are some situations that require us to go to court. It's not a matter of like taking man. This is God's ordained means of handling a situation. But the question for us is this, why are we going to court? Do we go to court because we want our voices heard? Are we going because we have a, a perceived wrong against us? Or are we going to court because this is, again, God's ordained means in our society to have that matter, matter, matter settled? Are we taking things into our own hands or are we waiting on the Lord? David had every opportunity to take things in his own hand, but he decided to wait on the Lord. Back to our text. Um, a pacifist is someone who believes that nonviolence is always the best response. There are a lot of famous people throughout history who are pacifists. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi is a famous pacifist. Martin Luther King Jr., a famous pacifist. Um, and some Christians even go so far as to argue that pacifism is the only faithful Christian response. Uh, to be clear, I am not a Christian pacifist, um, but I do believe pacifism has merits. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and the person on the podcast was making the claim that historical studies have been done that show that when we respond in a nonviolent way, there are generally better outcomes or better results than a violent response. Now, now that may be true. I'm not a historian in that respect. Uh, but we live in a sinful world, and so in my, in my humble opinion, there are times when Christians will have to take up arms. Uh, that, that happens from time to time, sad to say. But that being said, however, in this passage at least we can see, we could argue that David, at least in this response to Saul, he's, he's acting as a pacifist. He reacts to Saul in a non-violent way. And what are the results of David's pacifism? In verse 16, just as soon as David finishes his speech, we're told that Saul lifts up his voice and he weeps. And then Saul says to David in verses 17 and following, he says this, and again, I'm going to quote Saul here. He says to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in all that you did, excuse me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away? So may the Lord... Here's that phrase again. May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Now, there's a lot in that passage that we could focus on. But for the sake of time and brevity, I want to focus on two things that Saul says. First, I want us to notice Saul's repentance. Saul's repentance. Now, some may question whether Saul is genuinely repenting or not, but I believe he is. Now, mind you, we know from the rest of 1 Samuel that his repentance is remarkably short-lived. Okay, He's going to be chasing after David again very soon. But I believe right now, in this moment, he has a moment of clarity and he has genuine repentance. Here's why I believe that. First, he's, he's emotionally struck by his sin. He, he weeps. He cries out loud. He is not indifferent to his sin. Beloved, those who genuinely repent of sin are never, ever, ever indifferent toward their sin. 
It's a sign of genuine repentance that we're no longer indifferent toward our sin. But second, we also see that he's mentally struck by his sin. He recognizes his sin for what it is. He doesn't try to explain it away. Oh, but, 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 you know, this reason, no, no. He says plainly, he says, I have repaid you evil. It's another sign of genuine repentance. When we genuinely repent of sin, we recognize our sin for what it is. Evil. But there's something else. So we have genuine repentance here. But there's something else in Saul's response that I want us to take note of. Last week we saw that Jonathan told David that David, that Jonathan says, I know you're going to be the king and I'm going to stand next to you. And Jonathan said to David then, even, even Saul knows this. But here today, in his own words, Saul says to David, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Again, this doesn't mean that Saul is going to let David live happily ever after in peace. That's not going to happen. Saul's going to die before he ever reconciles that. But right now, in this rare moment of clarity in Saul's life, he tells David, I know for sure that you will be the next king. I mentioned these two things about Saul's response, his repentance and his acknowledgement that David's going to be king. I mentioned them because when we think about this, really... What else would David have wanted from Saul? What more could David have wanted? Did the the king say, I've sinned against you. And yes, I know you're going to be the king. This was was everything that that he could have wished for. I mean, sure, I I appreciate that you're not attacking me anymore, but right now in this moment, you've repented and you've recognized that God has His hand on me to be the next king. Without a doubt, beloved, without a doubt, this was one of the highest spiritual points in David's life. David honored the Lord in the midst of his trials. And the Lord has rewarded him for his faithfulness. David could have responded in fear, but he didn't. He could have responded in anger, but he didn't. David waited on the Lord and the Lord rewarded him. Beloved, there's another story of another man who honored the Lord in the midst of his trials. This man could have responded in fear, but he didn't. This man could have gotten angry, but he didn't. This man waited on the Lord and the Lord rewarded him. And if you're wondering who that man is, his name is Jesus. Jesus was arrested under false pretenses. He was put on trial before a kangaroo court. He suffered the lies of false witnesses and fearful religious leaders. And although he could have called down a legion of angels to his rescue, he didn't. He went to the cross to bear our sin and our shame. He took the punishment that you and I deserve so that all who turn from their sin and trust in Him can have eternal life. But you might wonder, where, where, is, where is His reward? I mean, He died on the cross. Where, where is His reward? What, what, what reward did David receive? Or excuse me, Jesus received. Let me read a passage from the New Testament. You needn't turn there, but you can put this in your notes. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. Listen to this passage. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Again, you might be thinking, where's, where's the reward? Here's the reward in verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, it's not a matter of whether, of whether you will confess Jesus is Lord. That's not, that's not even a question. You will. And you might be today here and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know when, you know, telling me I will do that. You know, I'm, te- I'm not telling you will do that. God's Word is telling you, you will do that. The question is this, will you do it now? Will you turn from your sin and now acknowledge Him as Lord? And thereby be given the gift of eternal life? Or will you only call Him Lord when you have no other choice and thereby lose the gift of eternal life? The choice is yours. I pray that you would do it now. If you've never done it before, you would do it now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word. For Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that here in the hearing of Your Word that You would use Your Word to, to bring each of us more and more into the image and likeness of Your Son, Jesus. For those of us who have already confessed Christ as Lord, that You would use Your Word today to, to mold us evermore from one degree of glory to another to be more like Jesus. Father, there's anyone here today, even one who's never trusted, who's never legitimately turned from their sin to trust in You. Lord, that today You would convict them. Convict them of their need for a Savior and that You would give them faith to respond to Jesus. Lord, whether they would want to speak to me after the service to make that decision public or perhaps they have a friend or a family member here who would, who would love to rejoice with them in that decision, Lord. Or perhaps they just have questions about what does that mean to trust in Jesus, Lord. Lord, give them boldness to find somebody, myself or again a friend or a family member after the service and say, I want to know more what it is to trust in Jesus. Lord, we thank You. We love You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to close with a... Um, I normally... I don't, I don't think I've ever used uh, the book of Proverbs in our benediction, uh, but I want to use this passage from Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1-7 through 7, as our benediction. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. 
but assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. May the Lord bless you and keep you and give you peace. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday afternoon. God bless you. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.